fellow Rewildologist. I hope you all are ready to get inspired. In this episode, I'm chatting with Judith Wanda, who is the International Relations Director and an Assistant Professor at St. Augustine University of Tanzania. She has been through more than you can possibly imagine. She was orphaned at a young age after losing both of her parents, and her and her brother found strength through education. Her surviving family members encouraged her to work as hard as she could through her studies to become more than just a village girl, and that is exactly what she did. She studied internationally and lived abroad for a decade before returning to East Africa to make a greater impact in young women's lives. She explains the importance of including local women in conservation initiatives and what tourists can do to both impact themselves and local communities. Let me know what you think of this episode by hitting me up at rewildology.com. Also, remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite streaming app. And now, here is my conversation with Judith. Hi, Judith. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited that we're going to just really get deep into, I mean, what I experienced when I was there and then your whole life, you know, because you were, you were born in Kenya, correct? And then you are currently working in Tanzania. So just tell, tell us more about your childhood. Um, I know you have quite an interesting story. So tell us. (laughs) Okay, uh, my name is Judith Wanda. I'm currently an, uh, I'm a lecturer. Uh, I teach public relations and I teach mass communication courses. And I'm also doing my PhD in journalism and mass communication. So I was born and raised in the village when I lost my parents at the age of four and 11. My dad passed away when I was four. Mom passed away when I was 11. And then I went to the village because that's where my grandparents were residing, and that's where they raised me from. I mean, we were, two, we were left two of us, me and my brother, my elder brother. And of course, life in the village was not that life that any child would desire to have, because you know, there there are no resources. Like, I mean, you walk few kilometers to look for water. You have to walk few meters or kilometer to look for firewood. You know, you. You don't have even enough. Uh, how do I say? We don't have. We didn't have electricity when I. When you go to school, uh, morning there's no breakfast because you can't afford breakfast. You can't afford lunch. The only thing you can afford to eat is dinner. So basically, my life was: we would wake up in the morning, go to the farm to farm because farming was the only way our source of food, where our food would come from. And then you leave and go to school. And then during lunch hour, you'll just be at school. Because if you decide to come home, you still know there's nothing you're going to eat uh, because grandparents could only afford one meal a day. So yeah, life was so tough. But as we went on things, we used to actually have fun where during harvesting time, there'll be lunch or there'll be breakfast at home. It's not a life that any child would desire to have. And uh, uh, what I can say, we managed to wither through. We managed to stay strong. I, of course, I got a support of my good brother who kept telling me not to give up. And despite the fact that my grandparents never went to school, but they loved school a lot. And they would encourage me, like, whatever you're going through, don't give up. Uh, you will have a good life if you have good education. That's the only thing I would live to remember. So, of course, I worked hard. I used to be top in class. And... Uh, I used to take part in debates. I always say my outspoken skills come from debates. I love taking part in debates. I used to be a leader in school. I was the class prefect. I became a class, I became a head girl. I mean, the top head of the prefects in school. So at a very young age, I started learning leadership skills. Yeah. And then, of course, in Kenya, we study until class eight on, for primary school education. And then when I, I, when I finished my standard eight, I truly did not know how I'm going to go for my form one because my aunt was already supporting my brother. So it was not like a guarantee that she has to come and support me. So I stayed home and uh, lucky enough, my aunt took me in because she wanted support of, to have some support at her place. So I went in to help her. But lo and behold, that was my breakthrough because then my uncle, who is my auntie's husband, uh, he's just passed away. May his soul rest in peace. Uh, he's the one who now took on and he really went his whole heart out and he kept telling me, the only thing I will give you that I know your parents would have given you is education. So he paid for my uh, O-level studies. 
took me to Malaysia for my studies. And uh, I, in Malaysia, I did my first degree, which was a bachelor degree in journalism and mass communication with Curtin University of Australia. I was a trans student. And then I continued with my master's and I got a job. I was employed in Malaysia. So I decided uh, while working, I will go in for my evening classes. So that's how I did my master's degree. And then I, I continued on with my PhD degree. But uh, after that, I moved back to Tanzania, now where am I, I am at, and I decided to transfer my studies back in Tanzania. So what I can say, a lot of people, especially those girls I studied with in the village, whenever they look at me, for them it, it looks like a miracle because, you know, life in the village, no one thinks of tomorrow because you look at your income, you look at what you have, and you're like, this is it. Like, I don't think I can have a better life after this. So I, my friends keep say, telling me that whenever they look at me, they can actually see hope. And I just want to inspire young girls out there, you know, like life is not about where you are raised. If I kept saying I'm a village girl, I'm a village girl, I will not be where I am. Today, when I tell someone I walked to go to school for Eight good years with no shoes, no one will believe. I first time I wore shoes to go to school is when I was going to, in my secondary school, you know, and I was raised in a place where I never had electricity. But life was life. And yeah, I'm very grateful to where I reached. That's amazing. That's such an inspirational story. Um, and I'm, thank you for sharing that too. Um, so, where do you think that mindset, this powerful mindset was instilled in you? Do you think that it just came from within you or was it your uncle that really gave you this mindset where like, you're not where you currently are? Like what your current circumstances is not what defines you. What really got, cause it sounds like that, that came into you at such a young age, which is incredible, which most, a lot of people around the world can't say that same thing. So do you think that was from him that really gave you that mindset? No, I can I, my mindset came from my mother. This is one thing I always will remember mom for because when I was very young, I remember when I was in kindergarten, when my mom was still alive, she used to tell me that you can, no one will ever understand you when you don't speak. And it's always good to express your mind. It's always, mom gave me that freedom to be to, of expression. And I always say every child, if you give them a freedom of expression, you help them to realize their potential. So in that particular process, that's how I started realizing capabilities of like, I could be a good speaker. I started realizing that uh, that's the time I started developing actually my thinking. And mom created this environment that every time I would stop in class, she would award me for that. Every time I would participate in something, she would give me an award. So I mean, especially academic wise. And if I, just, if I was that good, child and you know she kept encouraging me so that spirit was put in me right from at a very young age a spirit of wanting to be better a spirit of wanting the best out of me you know so it, I started realizing that I actually have a lot of potential and you see of course with mom's absentia and her not giving me presents now when my grandfather was telling me that studying will help me have a better future all these were falling in place because you see, at a very young age, mom had already created that platform that for me to be to be recognized as a good girl, I have to work hard in class. And if I work hard, she would give me that reward. And every time I would I would come home, I would speak. She would want to hear from me, like, what do I want? How am I okay? Uh, what is it? You know, that act of being given freedom to communicate made me realize that I have capability. And that I will tell you. Everywhere I go, I've never been afraid. Like, you never see me step, uh, be, be afraid or be shy to speak up because I always believe the minute you speak up, that's when people get to understand. But when you keep quiet, people will start creating different perceptions that are not there. Yeah. That's incredible. Sounds like she was quite an amazing woman in your life. And yeah. what, what, think, what do you think gave her that mindset? Did she have a similar path to you um, or was it one of those where she saw that she did, she wanted something different for her children and you just happened to be the beneficiary of that? So where do you think she got that very different way of thinking? Okay. Uh, a little bit is just that my mom was first born in her family of like 
uh, my mom, there were like eight kids. So she's the first child. And uh, of course, looking at her own background, her own mom passed away when she was one year old. So she was raised by no mother. And uh, so she grew up with her dad, of which half of the time the dad gave her freedom to to say what she wants. So my mom grew up in a family where there was so much. And good thing is her dad was educated, who is my great, my grandfather. So because my grandfather had that education and he was one of those engineers in the country. So my mom grew up in an environment knowing that for a child to be to grow and discover their skills, they need to be given freedom of expression. So that is one thing. One thing, she, she got that from the father. And second thing, because she was firstborn. So she grew up nurturing her, his her other young siblings so when we came in so mom was like already used to that you know like knowing how to raise kids because her younger siblings were born way after mom was a little bit mature he had gone to school so she had a bit of exposure on her hand wow that's pretty incredible it sounds like you come from a long line of people that are trying to break this one particular mindset that it sounds like you see quite often around you which that's incredible um, so after that, so you went to Malaysia. Was So was that your first experience out of your home country? Yeah, I flew to Malaysia at an age of 19 years old. And uh, that was the very first time I was living in Kenya. That was the very first time I was going to stay alone without under the leadership of a guardian or leadership of a parent. I was solely going to a country where I didn't know anyone. The only thing I knew is the name of the university and the course that I was going to. That's incredible. How long were you in Malaysia? I stayed in Malaysia for 10 years. Wow. (laughs) Was that all education or was that you just loved being there? Like it felt almost like a home and so you wanted to stay. First of all, Malaysia is such a lovely country. I always say Malaysia will always be my second home. Uh, That is the place where I go to realize, like, of course, I knew I wanted to be, I knew I wanted to go into a public relation, mass communication career, but that's where I go to realize my potential. Uh, therefore, that is a country where I did my first degree and then I did my second degree. I worked there for seven years and started part of my PhD studies there. So Malaysia is a country where I connected with many people. I developed a strong friend network of friendship. I learned how to survive in different cultures because you'll understand this is a country where there's Chinese, Indians, Malays. And I was one flexible person where I would travel to the village and celebrate it. I would go to the Indian table to celebrate Hindu, Hindu, uh, uh, the, their Hindu culture. I was there during Chinese New Year. You know, I was all weather around because I realized to learn people, you have to be just immersed into their culture. And I, te- I tell you, I learned a lot. I have so many friends. Today, if I say I'm going back to Malaysia, I don't even need to think where I'm going to sleep because I have so many people who can accommodate me. I have a family, you know. I went to church. I went to Buddhist temples. I went to different uh, places. I celebrated Islamic, uh, uh, I mean, Muslim holidays. And it, I was just, I mean, that was just home. And it's a place where, of course, I when I left Malaysia, it's not because I had a pressure to leave Malaysia. But, you know, one thing I will tell you is that I always had this desire that I needed to go home and be able to transform lives and be able to touch some young girls and boys. And especially my students today, when I talk to them, when I'm able to tell them that, look, being born and raised in the village will not make you die in the village, but it doesn't define where your future goes. And I share my own story. I tell you, a lot of people get encouraged. Many come to me and they're like, oh, I want to pursue my studies. And that's what I wanted. And I just want people to not lose hope and say, oh, this is what I have is enough. Because if I would have said it's enough, I wouldn't be where I am. Absolutely. You're just like the definition of striving to be the best person of yourself. Like you're such an amazing person, Judith. Quite honored to know you. Um, so, so it sounds like it was more of a calling that brought you back to Eastern Africa. Exactly. Yeah, it was more of a calling, not necessarily like you had to, or, you know, your time was up in Malaysia or anything like that. So what made you decide to come to Tanzania versus Kenya? Was it the opportunity or, or what, what led that decision? Okay. Um, why Tanzania? For me, Tanzania has always been on my mind. One thing is because the level of exposure to a lot of young girls in Tanzania is a bit low. 
compared to Kenya. You see, when you look at East Africa, Kenya, almost everyone is exposed to education. And live alone education. The culture in Kenya is like you have to work hard. And like the versus the culture here, like here, uh, a lot of women are meant to be moms, uh, you know, homemakers, yeah? Finish education. The first thing they would think about is marriage. And then in my mind, I would be like, but these girls have a lot of potential, you know? So I realized that this is a country where people are so engrossed into culture that they don't have space or rather exposure to develop their own opportunity. And of course, with that desire, I got an opportunity to work with universities in Tanzania through various partnerships that I had while I was in Malaysia. And that's how one of the university gave me an offer to come and teach. And uh, for me, I always, always say it was a blessing because, you know, sometimes God will not put you, what I say is God will put you where he wants you to minister or rather where he wants you to serve him because this is for me i believe this is the right place god wanted me to be because every time i walk into those classes to teach these students and i tell them i'm doing my phd they're like wow you know just them looking at me at my age doing my phd they're like i can do it i did my one year certificate course when i arrived in malaysia and today i'm doing my phd these students are like wow we can also be the same thing and i said yes you can be you know so it's not about Oh, I don't have money, I don't have opportunity, because even if someone gives you money and you don't have that desire, it's not going to work. That's what I always tell them, you know. So for me, this is the place I needed to be because the culture here has built women to be mothers. You know, that thing that a woman is not supposed to be overeducated or a woman is not supposed to be top here. But I like that as time goes, the people are opening up. I do talk to a lot of parents too. And I always tell parents, you know what? Girls are now empowered. Having a girl child, having a, a, a girl child doesn't mean that she cannot be a leader. Nowadays, we have a lot of women who are leaders. Yeah, so we shouldn't oppress these young girls with the word marriage, 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 and they drop off their career, they drop off their desires, and they're rushing for marriage. Because for me, I be, I, I'm not saying marriage is a bad thing, but I, I, I believe it's good for you to also pursue your career. It's good for you to be who you wanted to be, you know, because at the end of the day, that's the life that you wanted to achieve. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. And like, and what's really wonderful about you is you embody everything that you're saying, like you did, like you, you didn't settle down. You went and you pursued your dreams. You traveled across the world. You've got this incredible education. And then you brought that story back to show for real, like you're a real person. Like I did it. like, you can do this too, which is beautiful, which is absolutely incredible. And having spent so much time with you in the community there, the, I mean, it was pretty amazing. The women looked at you like when we were at, you know, like the dancing competitions and you were standing there and doing the translations for us and making sure that we knew exactly what was going on. Like you were this confident woman in the middle of everything that was going on and like sharing incredible information. Like you were the example and it was beautiful to watch. I mean, there was plenty of women in the crowd that I'm sure were significantly younger than everybody in our crew and had multiple children already at that point. And then here you are, you're like, there is a different path. There is a different path. I am the example. Like I, I know you, you know me. Yeah. These might, these ladies might be foreign and they have a different life story, but you were the perfect example of you can make a different path. And I think that's why we liked God. We just completely fell in love with you because you just, you're so inspirational. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah. I, I mean, what you're saying is true because I've met a lot of women. I mean, in most, most, mostly in the villages and they're like, I would also, I would also want to be like you, you know, I would want to, how do I say? I also want to speak English. And I'm like, yeah, you know, the truth is, is I was in the village. We only used to speak in our local vernacular language. Like I didn't even know how to speak proper English. But because I, I, I told yesterday my students and they were laughing, I really used to love the journalist on BBC. You know, every time I, I would watch TV, I get an opportunity to watch TV and I see people in BBC speak English and I'm like, that is me. You know, that is the only thing I would say. 
I will say, that is me. One day I will be doing this. And you see, today, I'm not a journalist, but I teach students to be journalists. You know, I've written my newspaper stories. I've, I've worked a lot with journalists in different parts. So what I can say is that I have experience and I love what I do. You know, for me, I never even get tired to teach. I walk to class and I teach this student and I feel like I've done something, you know. It's not something that I struggle to do, but because it's something that I've always wanted to do. And I can tell you is that one thing, whenever I go even to these villages, when I work with this uh, different, uh, when we did, went to the village to do this beehive stuff, it was just incredible because you, as you said, it's true. It's not difficult for women in the village to relate to people who are from different countries, especially a developed world. But they, when they look at me, who is like, just like them, they are like, wow, we also want to be like you. But you know what? I feel so honored because I know they will encourage their daughters. Yeah, Their moms, yes, but they will encourage their daughters, their sisters. They will tell them to work hard. And that's the spirit that I want to put in them. Yeah, and you're definitely doing it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts that you're not. Um, so when I was there, you shared some incredible stories of how you've actually brought in some young people into your home and really empowered them to make something of themselves and, and gave them a different, you know, just path. Would you want to share a couple of those stories? I think they're quite incredible. And that is a story that I will always uh, remember. This girl, the only thing she knew how to cook was rice and beans. And when I looked at her, I felt she's a very good cook. But the only thing that this girl doesn't have is like she doesn't have education and she doesn't have exposure. So I brought her into my house and I took her to school. I took her to a vocational school where she was trained into cooking. I So every time she would cook in school, she would come home and do the practical. I would be there with the teachers. We will teach her different things. And then she went in for her practicals. And today, after nine months of being in class and doing practical, today she works in a hotel and she's one of the assistant chefs in hotel, in a, one of the tourist hotel here. So for me, I, when I see people transform their lives like that, that is the amazing part. You know, uh, when I took her to school, it's not that I had money. I actually didn't have money. But what was inside me is I had a desire of seeing this girl become someone better. Because she had, she her potential was in cooking. She had that potential of in cooking. But she needed someone to help her realize how to make it more better for her to better her life. You know, I, that reminded me of my very own life. I had a potential in, in broadcasting, but I just needed someone to empower me to go to school in order to, to nurture those skills to become a reality. And that's why I say my uncle worked hard to make me who I am. And I really am grateful that I made an impact to this girl. It's not about the money. It's not about staying with her, but it's about who she is now. Yeah, she's someone who can cook. You can imagine a person who only knew how, how to cook rice and beans, and today now she's become a good baker. She she works in a big hotel. Truly, that is the kind of a society we want. You know, this is a girl who, if we didn't pick her skills at that age or at that stage, today she will just be living a miserable life and not realizing that she has a lot of potential in her, especially when it comes into culinary area. So. That is my greatest desire, just to pick up skills, especially in women. You know, a lot of women have skills. There are women who are good in braiding hair, for example. You saw people could braid hair. There are women who are good in tailoring. There are women who are good in embroidery. Like, they can do different stuff. They can do artworks. But the thing is, is that a lot of them, they don't know how to, they don't have the knowledge and the skills, how to transform these uh, God-given talents into tangible products that can give them an income, yeah? Uh, and that's why I always say that if they are empowered, you know, empowering someone is you, know, it's you teaching them because like you see this girl, when we I sent her to this vocational school, it was not just about cooking, but she was even taught how to do, how do you turn food into a product that when that can give you a, some sort of income, yeah, that can give you some sort of profit. And she was taught the skills and the knowledge that she needed to put it as a whole package. So that's what they actually need. Yeah, so for me, at least that is one. And then I went further, I took in one boy. After the girl, I took in the boy, I sent him to our vocational school. And this one, this time around, he did electric, electricity and plumbing. 
and we he was he loved doing electricity stuff and now he's now there working doing is back in the village he's having his own place that he does this electricity he fixes things for people and you know now he has become a resource yeah that's incredible and and like and that that was just out of your own big heart like no one told you you had to do that these weren't necessarily like family members that you had to take in or anything this is just who you are and i'm really glad and thank you for sharing those stories because i think it just goes to show just the kind of heart you have it's not it goes beyond that like you didn't have to do either of those which is really incredible so what now that so you are are a professor right like so you teach in university oh yeah you guys will call them professor here you call them like Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So what exactly is it that you teach? I teach, um, I teach public relations, mass communication courses. Perfect. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so what exactly do you review with your students? So what are like some of the big takeaways or, um, and your lecturers, like what exactly are you teaching them? We, I teach students how to develop stories from a real ongoing issue. Like for example, we have, Girls, uh, uh, which is, uh, let me give an example. Like we have, currently we have challenges of a lot of young girls becoming pregnant, yeah? And they're becoming pregnant because they don't have that knowledge about pregnancy. They don't have that knowledge about challenges of raising a kid. So like they cannot speak out for themselves. They've reached a point where women, uh, you know, it reaches a point and there are things that you realize when I do this, I'll get a mistake. So I teach them how they can write stories. Basically, I teach them how they can write stories on an on day and on an ongoing daily thing. So things that they get exposed to in their real life, how they can turn them into stories that when people read, they're able to to be inspired, to be educated, to be informed. You know, because when every time you write a story in a newspaper, there's something you are expecting out of it. Either you're informing people or you're educating people because that's the only channel of communication that you'll be able to use to reach out to the community and be able to transform lives. Yeah. So that course is where I involve them to do real life activities. Like I'll tell them to look at what is going on within the environment. And then, for example, if there's business, for example, they, I'll tell them to go to the market and look at the kind of foods that are on, on season and then look at the importance of that food in terms of health and how can you write a story that will help someone who never saw the value of that food now would be able to appreciate that food and have it in their life, part and parcel for their health purpose. So, and then there's another course where I teach them public speaking protocol. How do you develop your speech and how do you speak to people for them to be able to understand you? And that is one course that I love because Speaking to people, it's not just about standing up to talk to people, but you have to put yourself in the shoe of those people who are listening to you. Because when they're seated there listening to you, there's something they're expecting out of you. That's why they're there, you know. So if you're going to stand there and not be able to speak to them and imagine a certain community or imagine a certain audience, then there will be no connection with those people. So I teach them to first understand the mindset of the people they're talking to. And then once you understand the mindset, then there are issues that when you highlight, you actually touch them. For example, I always tell them, if you're talking to a stay-home mom who's not going to school, remember this mother, all they're thinking about is having a meal on their table, how to sh- to to take care of the kids while at home, you know, how to plan food, how to do shopping. So there are things that a mother who stays at home will think. So if you're going to talk to her, make sure that you touch her day-to-day routine. Yeah, Don't go plucking things that she doesn't, is not exposed to and you tell her thinking that she will understand you. And then I teach another course, into, I teach uh, public relations and customer care especially to tourism students who undertake these courses, this course because the whole essence is a lot of people do not understand the word public relation. You know, I, I mean, it's a, it's a career here that people never understood much. So I always tell them when you say public relations, how do you build your connection with the people in regards to your organization? Yeah. So the meaning relation means how do you relate to people and people are this, the public. So what kind of activities do you do? How do you how do you create an environment that will people say, I still want to go back there, I still want to do this, I still want to go and watch a movie in that cinema, I still want to take my kids in that cinema, because there's something that that cinema provided to this person that he feels so related to it compared to this other part. And then once you, you create that environment, then how do you create a good customer care so that this person 
will forever be able to remember you. So this is a course that I teach third year tourism students with the essence that when they get to be employed in this different tourism organization, they are able to develop uh, campaigns, they are able to develop platforms that will help this organization relate to people and be able to continue maintaining their tour their customers. And of course, all my subjects, I try and make sure that they get to do real life activities. Yeah, I don't tell them, imagine this, imagine that, no. I make them to go to these organizations, I make them to talk to them, I make them to do a research to understand if it's a hotel, how does that hotel operate, which kind of customers do they serve, and then which kind of activities do they do, and then I give them the freedom to devise which activity would they have done, should they have been given an opportunity to work in that hotel. And I can tell you it has worked because some of the students ended up got, getting jobs in those places. Some of them, whenever they present, they have gotten exposure. Some have gone into other companies and they bring along the skills that I've given them because they have something tangible and it has helped them to grow. Yeah, that's awesome. Like you've pretty much showed them the, the importance of networking and getting out of your circle and meeting with new people and the opportunities that arise when you do that. And that's really powerful, especially nowadays when we're getting so just drawn in on our phones and that's everywhere in the world where people aren't having as many face-to-face conversations. And so like, that is very empowering that you do that with your students. Cause I mean, a lot of them are very theoretical, like me having spent a lot of time in school, it's like, let's think about this. What is this theory that we're talking about? Like those kinds of things. So it's really cool that you make them go learn public relations. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. And so I think that ties in very well. So we met last year by me and a group of incredible women from Colorado. We came out to make a women in conservation documentary and really just highlight what's going on in the area. And we had the privilege of meeting you on that trip which was incredible. Like you, you made our trip. We completely fell in love with you. And like, thank God we met Judith. Um, cause he, you made our trip. Um, and so you had an incredibly unique position where you actually understood what the women was going through. And I would love if you could speak on from firsthand experience, really what women's role is in conservation in Tanzania. Okay, uh, when it comes to conservation, I need, you know, before I touch conservation, I need to tell you culturally, a woman is a, in, in our culture, a, a woman in our culture is someone who is considered to be a mom, yeah? It's someone who is considered to be, not to, how to say, someone who is considered to be, to be second. Second meaning that you cannot raise your voice or you cannot, be you know you 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 cannot how do I say there's a word I want to use it like you can't come out and lead I mean be on top of a a man you know that is one thing that culture has created women to be most of African cultures yeah so when it comes to area of conservation women were never thought of from the very beginning yeah there was nothing that people could see good out of them when it could come for them to help in conservation. And that really brought in a bigger challenge because uh, a lot of women just felt they could only take care of kids, you know, even studying. You realize a lot of girls, when they were taken to study in universities, no one undertook conservation course. But then I never even heard if there were any parent who would want their child to take, an, especially a girl, to go into conservation. So this is an area that was only left for men, yeah? It was not an area that was thought of for women, but only people did not realize that women are the good are good communicators in messages. You could see those ladies how they danced, the songs that they were singing, how they could exemplify these animals. You know, there are certain words when they could communicate, it will help you feel the touch, like the love, like you know, even if this elephant seems to be terrible animals, but you could feel like there's something that these women are trying to communicate. So what I wanted to say is that. Uh, women have not been given the voice. Actually, that's the word. They have never been given the voice when it comes to conservation. Conservation has been an area that has been left to men, yeah? Because it has it, it was always perceived as a tough area. It was always perceived as an area that 
women are not strong enough, yeah? So it was just seen like men who are stronger, they're the ones who have to go out and face the animal and walk into the, you know, walk into this, how do you call it? Walk into these uh, national parks and zoos. I mean, as we are game reserves, sorry. So it's, an, it's a very young area, but it's an area that if women are given a lot of exposure, and they're given a lot of skills, they can communicate. For example, women are very good in, in tailoring. Yeah, you know, doing conservation doesn't mean you go in and start running around with poachers, but just creating opportunities for people to work, creating opportunities that will enable people to remove this idleness, creating like what Kate Adamson is doing, like doing all this uh, beehive fences. I tell you, this project we just did few months down the line. They are already having bees. They are now doing bee farming. Elephants are not crossing there anymore. So you see this community and women, I tell you, in all those communities, the biggest percentage of people who we were with were women. And it showed that women can even fix a beehive fence. You know, it didn't have to be men. So this is one thing I can tell you. Nowadays, when it comes to conservation, Women are fully aware and fully ready to, they are very ready to participate. You know, so one thing I realized from the small exposure that I've had with these communities that I've gone into, that nowadays there's nothing about men and women. Uh, I mean, there's nothing about this is for men and this is for women. Everyone is ready to participate. And women, they are very cooperative because at the end of the day, they also know that conservation affects them. It not only affects the men, but it also affects them because if their farm is destroyed, mom will not have food to give put on the table. And you see, when go, dad goes out, how will mom be able to survive? You know, that kind of thing. So it's a win-win win situation. That's wonderful. And how, mm -hmm. like, how does someone get into these communities to learn what they need and be able to create these conservation projects? Um, I know that you're really good at this and we've talked a lot about it. So from your experience, what is the best way to get conservation on the ground? Okay. You mean, how do we get to involve women in conservation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, how do we get to involve women here in conservation? It's by, you know, it's by first of all, realizing their potential. Like every community, a lot of women have a lot of activities that they're doing. For example, there are the, the, those women, who, the women who are good in tailoring, as I said, the women who are good in art, the women who are good in singing and dancing, the women who are good into cultural tourism, where you could go and stay into those communities, especially homestays. They could teach you, the women who are good in teaching you how to, you know, cultural values, how to how to get part, I mean, to be involved into farming, how to do a lot of activities down into this village. There are women who can nowadays, they can even create their own soaps. Yeah, so what I can say, and they now also, and every mom has a child and every, every a lot of kids in the village, they're very talented. So for me, I always say, if you want to empower a, a mother, you have to start with the child. So if there are different activities that both mom and mothers and kids can take part, that will be the right way. Because when you are able to empower them to develop their talents and to realize their potential, they can now turn, turn it into a product. And once they turn it into a product, it will be a source of income. And once they have a source of income with them, they are able to grow. You know, they're able to now do more activities. They're able to expand their area of comfort and be able to grow economically and financially. First need to understand every community have their own, uh, how do I say, like there are communities who are into farming, there are communities who are into fishing, there are communities who are into different types of economic activities. So you have to turn these economic activities that they're exposed to with their skills. And then together it becomes a package and this package, when you train them, it turns into a commodity that they can bring to the market and be able to generate an income to them. Because like, you remember those women who are dancing. You know, dancing itself is a cultural tourism. But how do you package it so that for them, they can realize the potential? Because it's not just dancing for people to entertain them, but they're dancing because they're able to, to, to generate an income out of it. And that is money that will help them to educate their kids, they, to be able to support them to go to school, to be able to support them to go in, into artwork, into art, 
into different types of activities that they will want them to get into. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and I know that because we we were specifically when we were all there, um, really heavily interested in the communities that are surrounding the national parks, because yeah. those communities, I mean, they deal with a lot. I mean, just having some big, devastating animals around can really cause a lot of damage should something happen. So in those particular communities, is there anything different that needs to be done? Like how, how are the women really brought into the conversation for those type of areas? Uh, okay, you mean that how, how are they involved into conservation? It's because they face it. You know, the farms that are being affected is their own farms. And half of the time, because their men have left to go to town to look for, for jobs, they're the ones who are left at home to do farming and to be able to use whatever little farm harvest that they have to feed for the family. So you see, when they have done their farming activity and then elephant comes and destroys, then they're left with nothing, you know? So they're the ones who suffer the most. And because they're the ones who suffer the most, they need an alternative source of income that can help them to cater for their in for what they are doing. Like when you have those beehive fences, and now that the elephant cannot cross to go into their farm, you see at the same time they will be waiting for their crops to grow and then harvest. But on the other side, they will have their beehives. I mean, their bees they are growing and then getting their honey, packaging them and being able to sell. And then they can brand that honey into the name. In a, I mean brand that honey in, a, in their community name and be able to promote their community in return, you know? And that community can be an attraction as a source of tourism attraction because people would want to go. People would want to see like, these people are doing bee farming. How are they doing it? How special is it? And how is it helping them? In return, you realize that you're just creating a chain of source of income without having to use too much energy and struggle. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, yeah, like with us seeing, I mean, because when we were there, I mean, we saw the devastation, you know, just one area of elephant overpopulation could really devastate a local community. And then what incentive do they have to protect the wildlife when it's literally destroying their life? And exactly. that was very insightful just being there. It's like, oh, how could you want to kill an elephant? It's like, well, I've never had an elephant destroy my home. Like, who am I to say what it's like to live with these animals and bringing in the women in the conversation, which you've done an amazing job of, I think really helps bring it to perspective and bring it to light for everybody to really put it in perspective, what it's actually like living around these national parks that we love visiting so much as tourists. Like we actually got to see the communities that are around these national parks. When you're usually just a tourist, you don't see those. You just go into the park and see the incredible wildlife, which is amazing that it's even there. And to see what people have to struggle through to live near them. I mean, it was quite, it was amazing. It was very eye-opening for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. So on that note, for anyone who is a tourist that's coming to Tanzania or visiting the area, is there anything that, they should know before they come or they should keep in mind or um, what advice or knowledge do you want to share with any tourists that are coming to the area? You, you, uh, you know, a lot of tourists, when they come to Tanzania, they want to go to national parks. But one thing I would decide is at least they should visit these villages. They should visit these communities. Uh, visiting the communities will give them a lot of exposure, will give them a chance to understand how people live. You know, just understanding how people live will really help you to appreciate life. You know, you'll appreciate life even in your own very your own environment when you get back home in your own country. And then another thing is it will help for them to be able to, to know the struggle, like as much as these people, you know, for me, I always say animals don't plan to destroy, but you see, that is their nature. That for them, they believe everywhere they are, it's their habitat, but they're just doing it because they're, it's part and parcel of the area that they are crossing. So therefore, like these people, they should also know that these people are struggling, you know? Staying close to a national park has never been easy because you never know tomorrow you will wake up and find an elephant outside your house. You never know tomorrow you'll wake up, your trees all are gone, 
you know it's like every day you're doing something and you get, you get back to square zero so i would love to urge tourists when they visit tanzania you don't just go to the national park you should also do what you should uh, you should also go to those communities that are near national parks talk to them hear what they want to say it's so interesting they some of them they have they know much better about their animals than we think that we have gotten all the information when we visit the national park so when you talk to the community because a lot of people have been there long before this national parks were created yeah so that is where i'm urging people to to go to the communities they will learn a lot and how would you recommend that maybe if a tourist is a little yeah. nervous or apprehensive to go into a community they don't know mm. how do you think that they should go about that is there should they partner with a tour company should they just go for it should they try to make connections like how no. does a tourist from the area not from the area come in and get to know a community whatever tour company that they're planning with they should request them to have an add-on to visit any nearby community to any national park that they planned to go because that is where they're going to learn quite a lot like when we went to nyerere we when we stayed with the villages when we visited those villages we learned a lot we learned the history of the animal with the history of the national park things that you should do what you should not do so you see there was quite a lot that the villages had and we realized their 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 economic activities like they plant rice they plant sunflower they can also teach you even how to do all this this farming activity so they should plan with their tour operators or whatever tour companies that they're working with to also go and visit this community to learn you know for me i can say this because i have had that exposure when i was in malaysia when i used to go to down to the communities that's where i would learn a lot about people and culture you know uh, what you read in books is not enough some of these things are not documented in the book some of these things you have to live and experience them by yourself and then that is the best you teacher ever when you experience it completely agree there's nothing better than just going <laughs> and meeting and connecting with people you don't know it's it's really some of the best experiences i know that i've ever had which i mean like i got to meet you like come on <laughs> i love calling you my friend now oh yeah, that's great yeah. yeah so is there any um i guess is there any like last things that you really want to share is there any like advice that you want to get to anybody listening or or any like final thoughts that you really just want to make sure that anyone listening really internalizes yeah there's one thing i wanted to share with you like uh, currently i'm a director of international relations i mean in the university where i work i work with different universities now around the world but my greatest desire i would love especially students who are into conservation who are into tourism to be able to have a semester abroad and i can facilitate for them to come i can work on the logistics and what not for them to come because i would want them to have first hand experience because when you come in as a tourist the whole essence is you have your time planned you know like you planned i'll be there for 5 days i want to see this amount of animals but when you come in as a student and you have a semester away abroad that whole semester you have a lot to learn you can go into the villages you can get to hear what people say because the world has become a global village and people are working in different networks you know one time you're going to meet someone from a different country and if this person behaves in a particular way and you're like who behaves like this but that is not no, you can't question that person that's the way they have been brought up but you see if you've had a lot of level of exposure that's why i told you when i went to malaysia and i went all to all these communities today when i meet an indian praying i will not even question why is he praying because i know that that is their culture if i meet a chinese eating with chopstick i will not look weird like i know that is how they do it you know so for me i want young girls and boys yeah especially people who are in our developed countries in europe in america to come down there's a lot to learn that is not in those books that we think we we'll read books and we get you know even if you say i would sit on youtube and be looking at people's documentaries remember people have given you what they want but not what you want yeah 
because that is what they were looking for. But what you want, you need to get into the ground. Yeah, when you get into the ground, you learn a lot about people. People are so welcoming here. You you guys had your own experience. You saw where we went. People were always all, all over with us. So people are welcoming. You get to learn a lot. You get to experience a lot. You get to also learn. I always say culture shock. Culture shock is something that you cannot avoid. But through culture shock, there are things that will always be embedded in your memory and you'll forever remember them. So I would like to encourage young boys and girls not to sit there and wait until you have graduated and then you are working and then you want to come for holiday. And then it's not, you, you know, when you're on holiday, you cannot learn a lot. But when you're on your study trip, you will have a lot to learn and it will empower you that one day when you start your own organization and when you go to work, you will be a totally different person. Absolutely agreed. Um, so what is the best way? So like, let's say someone is interested in doing a semester abroad or maybe um, a professor or someone else who might be listening to this, they are completely in line with you and would like to get in touch with you. What is the best way for somebody to get in touch with you? They can drop me an email uh, on my email address and then I can facilitate. It doesn't mean I, I will connect them with, because through the university is very much easier. We'll give them admission later because we are doing a cultural exchange. We, had, we have an exchange program where we give them admission. They come down to Tanzania. If let's say they uh, they want to be touched with the university that I'm working because we have tourism department, we have different different departments. So we'll attach them to a particular department, but we will give they will go through a, a semester program where they will be they will go into communities they will also get to tour they will also get to do different different practical activities so that by the time they get back home they have that exposure depending on the duration they want to stay so it doesn't mean that you have to be here 3 months 4 months like right now i'm going to be receiving students from finland this will be three girls they are coming down to do their semester abroad with us but they while they're studying, there are some courses they're going to undertake here in Tanzania. They want to see, to understand them from the African context or perspective. But at the same time, they get to use that opportunity to travel, to learn, and to be immersed into the community. Now, they just drop me an email and I'll help to facilitate. I mean, I don't mind, even if it doesn't have to be my university, I will always connect them to that place. Even if they're medical students. I've met a medical student from... Holland, I think. She came, because Holland, they don't have malaria, so she came down to study malaria, but while studying malaria, she went down to another community where they stayed there. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Great. And yeah, so if anybody reaches out, then I'll just make sure they get in touch with you on how to yeah, how, how to get a hold of you. That would be great. All right, Judith. Well, this was great. I mean, that, that's really all the questions I had, and if there's if there's nothing else that you want to share, then I'm yeah. fine wrapping this episode up. <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks. Thank you for thinking about me and thank you for allowing me to talk to my young fellow girls and women around the world. Wonderful. Thanks, Judith. You're amazing. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>